Support for The Trend comes from members of the Local Programming Fund. School's just about out, so it's time for the annual parental chorus to shout, Go Play Outside! And some kids take that advice quite seriously, devoting much time and energy to organized summer sports. By some estimates, more than 30 million children and teenagers play organized sports, and for adolescents, they're the leading cause of injury. So today, we'll find out how to prevent injury and heat-related illness. Dr. Chad Perkins is the Chief Medical Officer at Tri-State Community Clinics. Welcome to The Trend. Thank you. And Patrick Wempe is a physical therapist at Pro Rehab in Evansville. Welcome. Thank you very much. So uh, with so many injuries happening on the field, uh, does that mean that any of these injuries are preventable? Yeah, we think a, a great deal of these can be prevented. And there's a lot of statistics out there on that as well. But uh, that was one of the reasons we came together with uh, Tri-State Orthopedics Pro Rehab and uh, our entity to uh, make sure we gave an opportunity to get as many athletes aware and screened in a timely fashion to get things uh, prepared for the summer and fall seasons. And you do hundreds of free screenings, free physicals for students from all around southwestern Indiana uh, because it's a requirement to go through one of these screenings to actually it is, the and, and the uh, requirements are not any less lax, and the IHSA appropriately is being far more serious about that. And uh, we have just recently probably done nearly three to 400 of those here in the tri-state area for uh, two different school systems, and then uh, Pat can speak to the locations where they've been helping out. Right. We've been uh, involved in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and Vincennes, and, and certainly in the Evansville community. And the idea is to try to identify some kids that have a number one and uh, a issue that will prevent them from playing uh, right off the bat a major uh, problem that from a medical side restricts them from playing but also to try to identify those kids that may be at risk and that's the hard part the higher level of function uh, the more likely some movement problems will create trouble and our our physical process or our pre pre-participation screen tries to uh, sift some of those uh, problems out. So give me an example of some of the things you're looking for. Well, in the process, it's it's required by the ISHA to have a, a flexibility. The, the governing yeah, the body, state gave, right. governing body to have a flexibility screen. Well, what's that mean? There's no real good marker that says, oh, this kid's hamstrings are at a point where he shouldn't play. Hmm. What we've used is a... Um, a process called the functional movement screen it was developed in Danville, Virginia, as a uh, as a testing criteria for athletes. We've been doing it for quite a, a number of years, and we've got uh, quite a lot of data that we've participated in, and, and has uh, has also been um, researched across the country to look at these basic movement patterns. And when kids can't do the movement patterns appropriately, they score poorly. And it's a three point scale from 0, 1, 2, and 3, and the total score on that screen will uh, give us some information about how likely it is for that kid to develop trouble. And so we can pass that along to to their physician if it's severe enough, if it's uh, if it's mild enough to the athletic trainers who can get involved within a, a very individualized program to help correct some of those movement patterns. So and, and the changes are, are significant. So you're trying to do some predictive work here. Yes, and thankfully, you know, in the in the medical side of this, beyond just the sports and, and flexibility mobility side that Pat does, 
cardiac anomalies and and severe health issues are rarely found in a in a sports physical arena you know where we would be performing these services but unfortunately there are small statistics where you know a cardiac anomaly or some issue with blood pressure or something of that nature may be identified you know kids who might have a particularly uh, uncontrolled form of asthma and ultimately with with pat and I both being from the community, we're not in any way trying to, you know, interfere with someone's existing primary care relationship, but we see this as an opportunity to get to athletes and to students who may not get that level of, of intensity on the on the flexibility screen on the front end, and also for, uh, you know, families, parents who have jobs and work opportunities or situations that prevent them from getting in to get these done in the, in the routine course of what we do. Do you find students who go out for sports are generally self-selecting? That is, they're relatively healthy before you see them, and there's a good chance they're going to be fine for going into the sport. Yes and no. I think you know when we uh, when we see this, we should be fair to all things. We see athletes uh, for for sports. We also see uh, students who participate in band and other things like this. So uh, it's really anyone who's outdoors engaging in activity. Uh, so it's it's a good thing in that it's very non-discriminatory. It's kind of if you're in an activity that's school sanctioned, odds are you're probably going to have to have a physical to get that done. But to your point, yes, a lot of those kids are uh, are definitely on the healthier side. And I do think a positive that's come out of a lot of this awareness. I think most of the coaches we see now are more aware of, you know, preventative injuries and the necessity for hydration and being responsible with the athletes and with the, the things that they oversee. But um, I also think that there there's still all those cases that slip through which, which make that come to pass. But thankfully, it's helped our athletes be more aware in that I think they come in, you know, more fit for each season than they used to, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, so awareness is changing. People are behaving differently. Absolutely. And I, and I think the... Uh, the opportunity to continue to spread that education throughout the school system, whether it be the athletic directors, the coaches, the physicians, the trainers, everybody that gets involved is a, a big opportunity. So you're, you're going to be going out for a summer sport or you're, you know, the schedule's on the refrigerator already. You've passed the screening. What are things to watch out for, Pat Wempe, um, as you engage in these activities? Well, you know, this is the time for fall sports to really start ratcheting things up. This is the, the time where football strength and conditioning reaches its peak soccer preseason conditioning starts to ramp up cross country volleyball those fall sports and if you think of just the sheer volume of soccer players and football players from both the male and female side in soccer and, and obviously male side in football their intensity starts to increase a bunch the things you're looking out for as a well, one as a coach is the environment, the climate. Obviously, I think we've we've been uh, well aware of the potential problems of of heat related stress and, and working hard in a uh, high humidity, high temperature uh, environment. Those things are given, but from an individual side, what you're looking for is just those those unusual tightnesses, those uh, problems that are just a little bit more than just the average. Uh, post-exercise soreness. And that can be difficult because a lot of athletes are very driven and, uh, you know, there's that motto, no pain, no gain, which Absolutely. is probably a and, horror and, to you, but, uh, and, and but you know, people want to push it. through, yeah. right? Sure. Yeah. Another very interesting aspect of this, though the IHSA drives the program for the physicals, which I think we all agree is a good thing, they're also very strict about what can happen in the preseason. So much of what an athlete does during the summertime, whether it be football, soccer, you pick your, your summer's fall sport, they are not allowed to be formally coached for a great length of that time. So the training is left to them as an individual or to the parents or some other 
non-member of the uh, athletic association of that particular school. So if they don't have the education and they haven't been pre-screened, ultimately they could be out engaging in activities before a coach is officially involved or that they have any access to a trainer or to somebody to give them guidance. And that ups the risk. Absolutely. Yeah, if they're, if they're not prepared or they're not taking care of themselves, pushing too hard, not staying hydrated, that risk of injury over the summertime could end up potentially devastating how they start in the, uh, in the spring or the fall. How do you teach uh, an athlete, especially a student athlete, to know their physical limits? It's a tough thing. <laughs> That's a really good <laughs> That's question. That's why I asked yeah. the question. <laughs> number one, that the whole purpose of that preseason and even the offseason is to stretch those physical limits. And these kids are so plastic in, in many uh, facets because they're growing, they're developing, especially the, the, uh, you know, the change that we'll see in a male from – freshman year to senior year it's it's a metamorphosis in in some instances but it's difficult and that there's communication there parents being involved and certainly uh, the high schools have done a much much better job of being coordinated in their off season or certainly their preseason ramp up to activity but like Chad said there is a limit to how much they can be involved so communication lines have to be set Trainers are accessible. We, we, uh, we actually provide some athletic training coverage for the high schools around here. And those trainers have to be accessible by email, by phone, and even on the ground so that kids that are starting to have trouble can at least access them. Um, most of the time, though, it's the coach that he sees a kid who's not performing or not um, showing the, you know, the kind of uh, uh, measures that they would expect at that particular point in time that pulls the kid out and says, what's wrong with you? So it's, uh, it, it really takes some communication on, on all fronts. A lot of it falls back to mentoring as well. Most programs have, you know, a, a regime of assistance that might be, you know, graduates that have come into play. And a lot of times those young athletes help as well. We'll have more on summer sports as our conversation continues with Pat Wempe from Pro Rehab and Dr. Chad Perkins from Tri-State Community Clinics. We'll have more after a break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Trend on 88.3 WNIN and online at WNIN.org. Still ahead, essayist Scott Salmon on what it means to be a true Hoosier in the Gene Hackman sense of the word and a peek under the hood of the Evansville Museum's new planetarium. That's all coming up as The Trend continues. Support today comes from Evansville Day School, preparing for college, preparing for life for more than 60 years. Now enrolling junior pre-K through grade 12. Information online at evansvilledayschool.org. And from Romaine Crosspoint Buick GMC Cadillac Subaru, where new and pre-owned vehicles receive the Romaine value promise that includes a lifetime powertrain warranty and Saturday car washes. Romaine Crosspoint Auto Park is located at I-164 in the Lloyd or online at myromaine.com. We're talking summer sports with Dr. Chad Perkins and physical therapist Pat Wempe. And uh, so going back to what we were talking about with an athlete knowing their limits or what I'm hearing you say that often they're not the ones who know their limits because their bodies are changing so fast. Um, It sounds like there's a big role for parents to play as well in knowing how to monitor their child, uh, you know, when he or she comes home from practice or the next morning. Yeah, absolutely. And the... uh most of the sports now, and I've seen this across the various high schools that I've worked with, both for physicals and also in my time uh, 
coaching here in the community. I think there's a great network of information that comes from the coaches to the parents sort of as a, an organizational meeting at the beginning of the season, and that generally entails discussions about hydration, resting the body, you know, being aware of, of the kids' medical problems on the front end. Uh, but it also goes back to, again, uh, the school system itself. The IHSA has a number of educational pieces that, you know, go from everything from uh, you know, preseason training to the dangers of drug and alcohol during training to all sorts of uh, appropriate topics for the athletes for today. Talk a little bit about um, hydration because heat obviously is the big issue when it comes to summer. And, and Pat Wempe, as you pointed out, it gets hot and humid here. We all know sure. that. Um, what What are the appropriate steps to take to avoid getting into a, situ a situation where one's overheating and facing heat stroke or heat illness of some sort? Well, they monitor body weight. The coaches will, especially... Um, in the in the in the football environments that are are lifting and probably conditioning a little bit harder that they'll monitor individuals bodies body weight look for changes making sure that there's uh, no um, a, a large amount of weight loss that occurs in in a short period of time that's an easy that's an easy uh, identifier making sure that there's enough um, water slash Gatorade slash some type of electrolyte replacement fluid around and just coaching the kids into what they need to be putting in their bodies. You'll see this, uh, particularly in football, just because they've got equipment on. In soccer, it's a little, um, it's a little easier to monitor because they're, they're in a, a much more, uh, uh, hot weather type uh, uniform, but it's the same kind of thing. You, they have to coach the kids in terms of how much to put in their body, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 it, and it can't start that day. It has to be a process. Uh, the coaches do a really good job, I think, as a whole, preparing their athletes, even in, a, uh, in their beginning of conditioning when things aren't quite as hot, starting to build that volume. But acclimation can occur by being outside, being in that temperature, and the body gets used to it pretty quick. I mean, kids in Alabama are practicing football mm -hmm. at the same time, and the temperature is much hotter, but their system is acclimated to it. Making those transitions is, is the key. So you don't start out on day one wearing your full football gear and, and going out and you know, doing a big, and again, big workout. Back to our discussion, there is an expectation that the athlete enters the season prepared. You know, to come in unprepared is a danger to them, and the parents need to know that. The other thing is, some of it's just common sense. If you're going to be in a situation where it's two a day practices for football or soccer, uh, starting a little earlier before it gets hot, if time permits, or starting a little bit later once the sun has gone down. And the IHSA a few years ago, when we had some severe issues with dehydration and uh, severe or, or heat index issues in the area, uh, actually passed out. Uh, specific instruments for looking at what the temperature was, what the humidity was, what the heat index was, and there were sanctions to say you could not practice until you know those parameters were felt to be acceptable for the athletes to get out and participate. And that's the standard now? That is still the standard, yeah. Now, fortunately, we've had you know more rain and different weather patterns here these last few seasons, so it hasn't been as bad, but a few years ago when the Heat was real hot. There'd been a drought, wasn't a lot of water. Those were some pretty brutal seasons, you know, back in the August uh, time frame of a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, what about sports equipment? How can sports equipment be used to prevent injuries? And, and I assume it requires certain types of equipment, maybe condition of equipment and appropriate use of that equipment. On my end, that's really not as much as what we do. And the high schools have some responsibility for what they provide. Some of the sports, the athletes are responsible, but uh, there certainly are things with the equipment uh, and with uh, supplemental equipment like bracing and things like that that Pat could probably speak to better on that point. Yeah. You know, the hot topic in sports right now is concussions. And mm -hmm. part of our 
our screening process and our intervention with the student athletes is to provide baseline testing for all the high school athletes, uh, really starting down into grade seven. And these are baseline co neurocognitive tests that give us an idea of the activity level of the individual's brain so that if someone does, in fact, have a bump on their head uh, for whatever reason, we can go back and test the how their brain is from functioning from a neurocognitive side. Well, the the caveat to that is football helmets. People assume that better helmets mean less concussions, and that's not necessarily true. Uh, the helmet can actually um, be part of a, of a of a weapon, so to speak, because the helmets are so good. So protective equipment from a general side is has a, um, a governing body that oversees the National High School Federation, oversees certain types of equipment, batting helmets, chest protectors, those kinds of things, as well as football helmets. Um, I think it's the high school's responsibility, and the coaches, again, I think do a very good job of lining that out. When it comes to protective braces or bracing someone who has a previous injury or um, something that they're protecting for whatever medical reason, there's a whole gamut of things that uh, need to take place from an athletic training side, from the physician side, from the physical therapist side, whatever, that uh, um, will make sure that that person is protected, I guess. And prior injuries bring a whole set of risks of their own, don't they? Right. The number one risk for injury is previous injury. I mean, there's no doubt about right. that. We do know that. So yeah, we want to make sure that those kids that have had an identifiable problem, whether it's a sports-related or a trauma or whatever else, or maybe it's it's uh, genetic or you know birth-related, that they have every chance to play uh, that that's possible and then protected in the best way possible. But sometimes on that equipment subject, it's also about educating the athlete. And I'll use soccer as an example since I've coached that for many years. Soccer cleats can be a lot like tires on your car. Some better for snow and mud and some better for different types of turf. And so we'll have an athlete come to us sometimes with ankle problems or a foot problem. It turns out they're wearing sort of snow and mud cleats on a surface that's really not designed for that type of footwear. And so, you know, the, the cleat may have looked good to them, but it's probably not the best choice for that particular, you know, surface that we're playing on. Right. That's a great point. We'll see that in August in our office with kids that come in that are having Achilles tendon problems or, or foot-related pain, and you find out that they're wearing, you know, you might as well be wearing turf shoes because the ground is so hard, not, not much of a cleat is going to penetrate mm -hmm. the ground, especially if there's limited grass. So the surface you're playing on, the shoes you're wearing, can make an enormous difference in terms of injury reduction. In the short amount of time we have left, I, I want to ask you a bit about what happens if an injury occurs on the field. I, I gather there are certain standards now for how an injury is handled. Well, ideally, in in the high schools, the uh, the ISHA has mandated athletic training coverage at uh, all major collision sports. So in the ideal world, an athletic trainer would be on the sidelines and a team physician and immediately when the person goes down, certainly this happens on Friday nights and at football, when a person goes down, there's an athletic trainer there who's who's trained in um, emergency medicine and on-field medicine to splint, you know, assess the problem, et cetera, et cetera. If the physician, if a team physician is there, that's even better. Now you've got uh, you've got the the highest level of care. And it's gotten a lot more rigorous in terms of what's required, say with a concussion, needing CT scanning and and how it gets how you get back on the field. Eventually. Right. I, I think the statement 
that the ISHA has made is that we're not clearing kids just to be clearing them. Need to have them cleared by someone who is who has been uh, well versed in concussion management. And we have a lot of physicians in this area that have gone the extra mile and have been uh, trained in in develop development um, treatment and recognition of head trauma in a sports environment, which is definitely different than head trauma from a car wreck. Um, and so hopefully those those pieces are in place. They get assessed, and then the necessary steps are taken to get the kid back on the field as quickly and as safely as possible. Well, we wish everybody a, a safe summer training season and a, and a safe fall sports season. We've been talking about summer sports safety with Dr. Chad Perkins. He's the chief medical officer at Tri-State Community Clinics. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And also Pat Wempe. He's a physical therapist with Pro Ehab. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. And I'm Tony Voss. And in this week's B segment, Scott Salman is back with a new essay. And it's an exploration of what it means to be a true Hoosier. A recent action might mean the end of my Hoosier identity. I tore down and sewed off our basketball goal. Sacrilege, ye shout, condemning me to the lowly, lonely status of Hoosier heretic. Real estate agents are thinking, well, there goes the property value, for around here, basketball goes are likely drawn into home builder blueprints. The basketball go stood in my driveway for 10 years, a birthday gift to my son when he turned seven or eight. It was one of those Walmart beauties with a water-filled base, wheels, and adjustable height. As he grew, so did the goal. That's how we Hoosiers measure the height of our children. The rest of the world resorts to pencil marks on door frames. In hindsight, I don't think Austin even wanted it, though he graciously accepted it for what it really was, one of those rites of passage often forced upon us. I received my first basketball go from my old man at that same age. It was a first communion gift the wooden post, a trimmed-down telephone pole, and perhaps because of that, my basketball go bordered on religious symbolism, much like the wooden cross. I often blamed my missed jump shots on sudden visions of Jesus hanging from the rim. In religion class, when forced by Sister Ernestine to read the book of Mark, my brain couldn't help but twist Jesus' words to things like, If any of you wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. But first, how about a little hoops action? To be honest, in a state where basketball is religion, basketball hasn't been a big part of my life. I was an IU Hoosier fan for many years, but lost the passion when Bobby Knight vanished. Watching IU without Knight is like trying to watch Jaws without the shark. The game lost its teeth. My parents made me try out for the seventh grade team at our Catholic school. I still remember mom taking me to the department stores to find the required tennis shoes and shorts while I secretly prayed that they were out of my size, thus disqualifying me from tryouts. But alas, no such luck. I was the victim of my dad's childhood greatness. Family legend has it he was one heck of a player in seventh and eighth grades. Let it be known, though, that the only source of verification for this being my aunts, his sisters, who fawned over him. His life was greatly altered 
when he broke a foot during scrimmage, his career over. The future contenders for Indiana Mr. Basketball sighing relief. Oh, what could have been? What could have been? I think Dad was relieved, though, for basketball was getting in the way of his true passion, smoking cigarettes beneath the bleachers. The first several days of team tryouts involved us dribbling around demonic mazes of cafeteria chairs. This drill occurred so much that when we actually attempted to play a real game, I froze in mid-dribble without those chairs being on the basketball court. The chairs had represented the perfect opponent for me, inanimate objects without arms and hands to steal the ball. Suddenly, the chairs were real people. Suddenly, basketball became different, competitive. I actually made it to the final day of cuts and would have likely made the squad had it not been for my buddy Greg. He was cut days before. He was a chubster back then, the one with heart. As a consolation, the coach asked him to be part of the team as student manager. Greg convinced me that student manager was the way to go. You still took the bus rides, were in the team photo, and didn't have to shower with the boys after practice. He had that it's good to be king look about him. But even more important, he said, girls love student managers. That's all I needed to hear. I sold my basketball player's soul to Greg. I intentionally missed my layups, lost my dribbles to the chairs, broke my parents' hearts, and was invited by the coach to be assistant student manager under Greg. Note that Greg never mentioned the word assistant to me beforehand. Apparently, girls weren't fond of assistant student managers. I quit two weeks into the season, leaving devilish Greg to assist his own self. Oh, what could have been? What could have been? There you have it, my brief history as a basketball player. Not much to it. Maybe it's due to being height impaired. Another reason I bought a basketball goal with adjustable height. When the goal is at six feet, who says white men can't jump? Still, a missing piece within me weighs heavy. A strange feeling tickles my throat. Is it guilt? Whenever I pull into the driveway, minus basketball goal now. Scott Solomon lives in Jasper and is our essayist here on The Trend. You can hear past episodes of The Trend and more of Scott's writing by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, or you can go ahead and get them the old-fashioned way at our website, wnin.org. I'm Tony Voss. And I'm Micah Schweitzer. You're listening to The Trend. It's been a long time in the making, but early next year, the Evansville Museum will open its brand new planetarium. And when it does open, it will be among the most technologically advanced planetariums within driving distance. That's according to Jeff Bowen, who has designed the planetarium system. He's on his on the line from his office at Bowen Technovation in Indianapolis, where he's president and founder of the company. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, everybody. And here in the studio, we're joined by Mitch Lumen, the science director at the Evansville Museum. Hi, Mitch. Good afternoon. And uh, Mitch, what is going to make this uh, particular planetarium so advanced? One of the biggest advantages is doing it now. If we had done this 10 years ago, technology wasn't at the level and at the stage it is now. And frankly, I don't know whether 
here in Evansville, we would have actually went ahead with it back then because so much has happened in the last decade. You can go into a theater today and, and see a movie, and you can go into a planetarium today and see something completely different from what you'd seen 10 years ago. So in other words, movies look pretty much the same as they did in the 1990s today with the advantage of digital. It's just a slight different twist. But in theaters and the kind of theater we're doing, uh, we're really doing something that you couldn't do a decade ago. So how is this planetarium going to be different from the one you used to have? Well, our current planetarium has been in existence for a long time. In fact, we had our 60th anniversary last year. The Cook Planetarium has served thousands of tri-staters, and people remember going to their room and seeing a star show back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the noughts even. We're retiring that facility and building a brand new construction. Uh, we're going to put the planetarium at the front door, and we're not actually calling it a planetarium anymore. It's more a theater, hmm. a domed theater, a special kind of dome theater, in fact, Micah, that we call a full dome theater. Yeah, because uh, when I hear dome, I think of straight walls and, and then a, a dome on top. And this looks more like a, a ball or a bubble that's going to be in the building. If you've driven by on Riverside Drive in Evansville, you will see our construction. You still can. There's still a, ch there's still a good chance to see it. We are projecting things inside this half sphere, a hemisphere, and it's unlike anything you can see at the movies because it's an immersive experience. You're actually in the middle of it. Anything that we project on the dome, you're inside, and it's unlike sitting in a theater where you look forward and you get carried away. Uh, this, uh, you don't get any less carried away, but you're it's all around you. So Jeff Bowen, 360 degree video uh, and seamless projection. How do you pull that off? Well, you know, technologically, uh, we need lots of pixels to do it properly so that you don't see those seams. And so we have two, uh, two leading edge projectors, uh, the newest technology available that are super high powered. Um, they're not anything you could get at home or put in your home. Um, you know, they're a couple hundred thousand dollars a piece. And each of the projectors has four channels of video feeding them. Uh, so if you figure that each, each uh, of the inputs is, is seeing what you might see on your plasma screen or LCD screen at home times four, in effect, and that's each projector. Uh, each one of the projectors then covers one half of the dome with, um, you know, around 10,000 ANSI lumens each. So the result is that um, you, you have lots and lots, millions of pixels on the dome, and you can, through the microprocessors that we use, you can blend the colors and the intensity of each pixel individually so that you can blend the two images together seamlessly. So you have millions of pixels, and yet you can control each one. That's, that's really accurate in, in your statement of what's going on. And without that capability, you would have a sharp edge where the two projectors would meet and it would be really visible. But 10% or so of each one of the projectors across the top zenith of the dome um, are, are blended together so that as each of the projectors fade towards the center, the uh, compounded light from the two projectors equals the light in the non-blended areas. Hmm, I see. So, and then it's a, essentially an illusion then that there is no seam, there's no edge to the to the image. That's exactly right. Wow. And with 360-degree images, um, you can, as Mitch was saying, you put the subject in the middle of the experience, and you have video going all around your head. 
how do you then um, experience that as a viewer? I mean, what are you what are you experiencing, or what does this allow you to show? Well, there there are a couple of things. One is because uh, the the system is real time, and what that means is it's not just playing a video back like in a movie theater. But um, at Mitch actually has in his new facility, we've designed an interactive component so that the visitor can actually participate in where they place themselves in the visual field. So as a result, if you wanted to do a fly around Saturn, for example, and then zoom down close onto the surface, uh, Mitch, as your tour guide or leader, and his staff could, could do that for you, or the visitor can actually manipulate that in real time themselves. Um, and, and, of course, if you were in a movie theater, the visitor couldn't do that. And if they did, the second problem would be that the pixels would be so big that the resolution would be incredibly blurry. But the systems that um, um, the museum is installing crunch those numbers in real time. So as a result, the resolution stays the same all the time. It never, uh, it never pixelates out. Even when you zoom in, even when you zoom I in, I see. Now, Mitch, uh, you're going to have multiple people in this at one time. So, can you have people conflicting with each other in their choices of what they want to see? <laughs> yes, uh, we don't want to give the impression that it's always going to be interactive. That is an option that we can we can go to manual, so to speak. There's a couple of ways that an individual might be able to, to interact with the, with the system. Uh, the way that we're recommending is people today are familiar with using iPhones and iPads and other tablet devices and phones where you use gesturing. Xboxers will be familiar with the Connects feature of an Xbox unit, which the is Microsoft a... Microsoft Connect. Yeah, Connect. And you can do gesturing on that. We can actually control the interactive features of our theater using using the connects so you can uh, you can basically use gestures to fly from one place to the other and our database is pretty extensive mike uh, we have all the galaxies known we have all the stars we have all the planets exoplanets most of the uh, major asteroids most all of the major comets so in a traditional planetarium you go and see the sky from earth in our immersive theater we're not limited to just the stars and planets from Earth. We can actually go to the places you see in the sky and get up close. And whether it's real data from NASA or other sources, or whether it's made up, simulated data, uh, it really looks real and it feels real when you're there. How do you know this is scientifically accurate? Well, all of our programs will have been done with scientific consultants. The databases we use are scientifically accurate. The American Museum of Natural History created a really large database along with NASA, our country's space agency. So we know that the galaxies are there through visual surveys. And since everything is digital, if there is a change, it gets updated in the next update. And so we're accurate as of the next update. I see, but, but nobody's actually done a flyby of, of some distant galaxy. So, so there's a, it's a simulation of sorts, right? At some point, well, yeah, but as Mitch will tell you, uh, we now have telescopes, you know, such as, as, as Hubble, that are giving us a whole new generation of images with far more accuracy than we had, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and and uh, I'll let Mitch explain it because he's our science guru, but, you know, the data is superior now to what we had 20 years ago as well. Hmm. So all of that plays in then so, that, so you can really say this is the universe. 
Correct. And we're currently, Micah, talking about the traditional and untraditional, non-traditional planetarium aspects of the theater. The presentation of video and the more or less like a traditional planetarium are just two of the capabilities of this theater. So you could experience the universe in an interactive way or in a guided way or through video. And we'll find out more about what some of those other ways are as we continue exploring the new planetarium under construction at the Evansville Museum. We'll have more after a break. You're listening to The Trend. You're with The Trend on WNIN.org and WNIN 88.3 FM. Support today comes from Tin Man Brewing Company, announcing their locally brewed beer varieties in cans and on draft are now available in local stores and locations. More information available at tinmanbrewing.com. talking with Jeff Bowen from Bowen Technovation and Mitch Loomis from the Evansville Museum about the museum's new planetarium, or as Mitch is pointing out, that's uh, only part of what it can do. It's also a theater, an immersive theater. So you'll have shows there and, and movies that you show there in this 360-degree domed experience, Mitch. But uh, then you'll also have the planetarium function, and that uh, is much more customizable, I guess, according to the audience. Yes, briefly, we will have films. In fact, when we open, there will be two films, digital movies, that we'll be offering. These are interactive movies. You can see one at one hour and one at the other hour, and you can see uh, one of these films. Actually, you can see both of them in the evening. But in the planetarium show, the traditional planetarium show that we'll be doing in our theater, you'll have the opportunity during many of our shows to select a person from the audience. For instance, I could say, hey, Micah, come here. Uh, would you like to uh, fly the thing uh, for our audience? And uh, after a few brief gestures that I can show you how to do with your hands uh, using the Microsoft infrared system, uh, you could pretty much uh, handily fly your way from here to there. And it may not be a perfect voyage, but uh, I think we'd get there in the end. So I could say, let's let's go to Mars and then, you know, fly by and zoom on out to, to Neptune and, and zoom in and you know, all that stuff. You can just control that from it's it's really gestures. it's really amazing and, and I'll let Jeff add something at this point here. Yeah, in fact, you know, it's really a giant simulator, super high powered simulator, and one thing we haven't discussed is just the scale and scope of this. Um you're talking about the dome being forty feet across in diameter. Um the, you know, this isn't a ten foot diameter home theater kind of experience it's this is something you can't get anywhere else 40 foot diameter dome it's huge that means that basically vertically the screen above you extends 30 feet roughly um so you're in a huge environment that you're immersed in with these and mitch's tour that he's describing that he could take you on or you could take yourself on could also be a study of meteorology if you wanted to be inserted inside a hurricane 
uh, if you wanted to go down through a drilling and explore fracking, uh, which is certainly a modern contemporary subject, it's not just space anymore, but uh, we've done mathematics studies with math departments at universities using the same technology. And the door is wide open to space, space and history visualization of about any sort. And you design about 10 or 20 of these a year, Jeff. Um, what stands out about this project for you? Well, you know, we, we've been fortunate that although we're based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and we, we're thrilled to be in Indianapolis, um, in some years 60% of our work is offshore in other countries. So we get to see, you know, we've worked on about, I think it's 15 of these now in China, uh, four or so in India, a couple in the Middle East, including Egypt. And what what people, I hope they'll understand, is that this particular Evansville Theater stands with any of them as far as technology and capability, that there's no place elsewhere that has more capability and more possibilities than this one. And I'm not saying that just polit- to be politically in step with the museum, but um, it, it's really a fact. And, and Jeff, at the beginning, we talked a bit about the uh, rapid change that we see in the world of technology. How long will this be cutting edge? Well, being software-based, um, you know, that's one big advantage over the technology that a planetarium had in their 60s, 70s, 80s uh, configurations. Everything was hardware-based. And so for some institutions, it was difficult to abandon all that hardware they had invested in to go to new software-based solutions. <clears throat> and so nowadays, you know, most of this is software-based. So as a result, upgrades can take place via a download in many cases. Uh, content updates are much easier to get online. Student participation, community participation, much, much easier to achieve. Um, and so in a way, you can repurpose your visitor experience as often as you want and upgrade it as often as you want uh, for a fraction of the cost and effort that it would have been once upon a time. Mitch, was that a tough sell to get the museum to completely abandon what it had before and start from scratch? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a really good question. Our planetarium was the first in Indiana, and our last upgrade occurred in 1974. This was an era when people were using 8-tracks and other recording devices to replay sound. So our theater was very much antiquated even in the 80s. We uh, needed the new technology then, and we uh, certainly uh, needed it in the aughts. So uh, it's come at a perfect time. Uh, We're ready to retire the current Cook Planetarium and move on to something a little more contemporary. And what lessons have you drawn from this whole experience? Because this has been about a decade in the making now. You know, the official announcement came, what, in 2009, um, along with the fundraising campaign. And you have been successful in raising the money needed to to do this and getting the community support and the support from uh, the museum itself. We have been fortunate. This is a very generous community, and we certainly appreciate the generosity of the community. What the years of planning have allowed us to do is put together what we think is the best facility for Evansville. We didn't rush it. We took our time. We were careful. We looked. We looked some more. We made a decision. We reevaluated the decision, and then we went forward. It's been a great process, and Evansville and the whole tri-state are going to receive a wonderful new facility 
certainly uh, world-class. And Jeff Bowen alluded to this a bit already by saying that you can use this not just for space, but also for weather and history and geology. Um, Mitch, tell me a bit about what the role of this immersive theater, this planetarium is in the overall role, uh, how it fits into the museum and its overall mission. Well, it's going to be an important part of how the museum goes forward in this decade and the decades that follow. For starters, it's going to be right at the museum's front door, and that tells you something about its importance. When you enter the museum, bam, the immersive theater is right there. So it's going to be our best foot our best foot forward. The theater is also a great place to do other presentations as well. It seats 68 people, stadium theater style, so you can do traditional uh, PowerPoint presentations in there. It's a great place to have meetings. It's a great place to have small gatherings. It's a great place to explore the universe. So I'm not calling it a multi-purpose facility. I'm just calling it an immersive theater because that's really what it does. Jeff Bowen, what's the most uh, interesting use you've seen one of these types of spaces put to? Well, um, they're all interesting, but, um, you know, one comment I want to make is that although we work on these all over the world, one thing that's interesting is that each each site has its own personality, and it's important to that our design work incorporate and reflect the personality of the institution and the presenters. And uh, we don't come in and just design it to be a cookie cutter like every every other site that we would work on. Mitch and his team have had terrific input into the design process and making sure that the things that they and the community want to be able to do in, in the site uh, are doable. And uh, I would say one of the more interesting things that we've seen actually was working with IUPUI, Indianapolis, uh, Purdue, um, Indiana University, in the math department. They went in and created 3D real-time images of mathematical uh, equations. Hmm. And then uh, those were projected on the dome when the uh, chemists at Eli Lilly pharmaceuticals saw this happening, they asked us to work with them on creating molecular models in 3D that they could project on the dome with Digistar and then see how those molecule shapes were interacting to create antibodies. Um, and and uh, in particular, they're working on asthma treatments. Um, and those are just a couple of really interesting applications we've seen that are out of the box. Fascinating. Uh, well, I'm sorry to cut you off here, but our, mm -hmm. our time is up. But obviously, the sky and beyond is the limit with this new facility. And uh, it's been fascinating hearing about it. Uh, it'll open up uh, next February. And we've been talking with Jeff Bowen. He's the founder and president of Bowen Technovation, which is uh, putting all the fancy stuff in the new immersive theater at the Evansville Museum. And Mitch Lumen is the science director there at the Evansville Museum. Thank you both for your time. You're listening to The Trend on 88.3 WNIN and online at WNIN.org. Support comes from Morton Solar, a renewable energy solution provider for residential, commercial, governmental, and utility clients wanting to reduce electricity bills and lessen the carbon footprint. Located in Evansville, Indiana, Morton Solar provides consultation, engineering, and design and installation for projects throughout the tri-state area. Information on Facebook or 812-402-0900.
pretty spacey sounds today on the show. You're listening to The Trend, and Roger McBain is back in his usual seat to wrap up the show with the Arts Notebook. And uh, Roger, though the weather might be a little cool, it will certainly be a clear and pleasant night uh, to start another season of the Alhambra Theater's outdoor film series uh, at Haney's Corner in Evansville. That's right. The, the 1913 theater is still empty and dark, but uh, the outside will have uh, a movie. Wizard of Oz, 1939 uh, Wizard of Oz will be showing on a screen on the side of that at sundown today, the beginning of the theater's um, alfresco cinema season that they, they have every year while we dream of the day when we can see a movie inside there again. All sort of in hopes of raising the awareness and the commitment to, to getting to that point. Yeah, and the, uh, they'll provide the popcorn and the sidewalk chalk and the bubbles and uh, we bring chairs, blankets, and maybe um, we might want some hot cocoa tonight, too. Um, there'll be uh, movies coming up in June. E.T. will play on June 28th, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and that would be the original one with Gene Wilder uh, on uh, July 26th. Sounds like a lot of fun. Now, another summer happening. Uh, libraries have their summer reading programs going. And they're offering some pretty flashy enticements this year to get people to uh, turn some pages. You bet. Cash, technology, transportation, and forgiveness. (laughs) (laughs) Absolution. Absolution. I assume for library fines. (laughs) Yeah. Willard Library's uh, sign-up begins Saturday for Willardology, Weird Science. That's their theme this summer. And they're giving away prizes including bikes, science kits, uh, Iceman tickets, uh, Swander Ice Time, and there will be demonstrations, science demonstrations that you can try at home uh, throughout this period. That will run through August 3rd. The Evansville Vandenberg Public Library Systems program has launched already, but you can go in and sign up for that anytime. And that has uh, cash, gifts cards, Kindles, uh, seeds. And uh, they will forgive up to $10 in library fines. I think it's a dollar for every 15 minutes. You have to read in front of the librarians, and, and you can't send in a ringer. You, you can't read for anybody else. You, you <laughs> have do to your own reading. read for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're looking for something to read, you could go to the Willard Library's annual book sale. Yeah, uh, June 1st, they will have their annual book sale, which is actually across the street at the Fire and Rain Studios over there, which used to be the Evansville uh, Farmer's Market. It's mm-hmm. on, on those tables undercover over there, but that's an annual event that will be from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. June 1st. And the prices uh, are too good to refuse. Yeah. Yeah, great, uh, like 50-cent dollar books there. Now, there's something really powerful about how art can lift up people and help us understand each other in new ways. Um, and reading your article on, on this uh, mosaic project by Evansville Arc certainly seemed to fit with, with that capability that art has. This is an exhibition that is in the Arts Council of Southwestern Indiana's Bauer Sir Heinrich Foundation Gallery. There's a mouthful on Main Street, 318 Main Street. It'll be up through the 12th of June. And th- these are fabric mosaics made from, I guess, cloth, vinyl, other materials that have been donated uh, to Evansville Arc, which is uh, an organization that serves uh, children and adults with disabilities. 
And this was a program that began, actually, they thought as a one-time event in 2009 when they brought in some volunteers to work with clients in the adult daycare program uh, to create some art. And it's uh, picked up. It's been going ever since then. And they have uh, numerous examples of it in their own facilities on Virginia Street. But this is a chance to put it out on Main Street and let the public see what uh, these these people do. The president of Evansville Art says, you know, this shows that the love of art is universal, regardless of your abilities. Absolutely. And um, now two experimental ensembles are going to be presenting a collaborative effort tomorrow. And, and this will be an interesting look at the creative process, because it's not a finished product that's on stage. Not, <clears throat> not at all. Um, and the the Evansville group is called In the Mix. There are four people in that ensemble. And then there are three people in this Bloomington, Indiana group, the Fourth Fall. Uh, four of the of their total are former Tales and Scales members from the Evansville Musical Storytelling Troupe. Mm-hmm. They're working four days to develop some theater projects that involve movement, theater, uh, music, and they're going to let the public in tomorrow at 11 a.m. in the University of Evansville's May Studio Theater to watch the process. It won't be a finished production, but it'll be a chance to see how this kind of ensemble theater development takes place. Very interesting. And if I give you 30 seconds, Roger, can you tell me about uh, Soup and how it can fund artists? 41 South is uh, doing something on June 2nd called Sunday Soup. You bring $10 food to share and uh, pitch some $10 into a hat. Arts groups will get up and pitch their projects to you, and then everybody votes to see who to give the money and the hat to for their art project. The details are in Roger's article in The Courier and Press and at CourierPress.com. Roger McBain rounds out the show every week with The Arts Notebook. And The Trend is a production of WNIN in collaboration with the Evansville Courier and Press. Our producers are Ryan Reynolds and Tony Voss. He also engineers the show. The theme music is by Jeffrey Osman. I'm Micah Schweitzer. This is WNIN-FM, Evansville, Henderson, and Owensboro.